Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information about Home Church, visit us at myhomechurch.org. Merry Christmas, everyone. So good to be with you guys. I love this time of the year. I love how the, the, the calendar has worked out that we get to be together Christmas Eve morning. Um, for so many reasons, I, I, I just I love it. And I'm um, filled with joy this morning and thankful to our worship team doing an awesome job. Well, welcome. I know there's a lot of family and friends here, so welcome. Welcome home. Um, I just want to give a quick announcement before we move forward at all. Just a reminder that we're going to have an ushers meeting on January 7th, so that will be right after church. Uh, you could see Pat Marini, who's all the way in the back right now sitting down. But if you're interested at all, you, you don't, even if you come, it doesn't mean that you have to uh, be involved. We just want to hear more. We could certainly use help uh, in, that, in that area. So again, January 7th, right after service, we'll have an ushers meeting. Um, so please come for that. How many of you guys were with us last year for our Christmas service? <laughs> uh, that was when we had the winter storm uh, where it literally, I don't even know how cold it got. For whatever reason, we thought, we thought it would be a wise idea to still gather on a Friday night in the midst of a winter blizzard, minus the snow, but the, the freezing temperatures. It was ridiculous, um, but we survived. So this, is like, this, is, this feels like we're on vacation right now. This is beautiful. All right, well, I know so many of you guys have, uh, you know, family plans and traditions and things that you're going to jump into today, which is awesome. So that's why if you've been with us, you say, wow, worship, 1040, we're, we're <laughs> a little bit earlier than normal. I want to make sure we give time for you guys to get out. I know everyone's run around. But, but with that being said, I wanted to take a few minutes just to set our, our hearts, our affections, our mind on the Lord and really come into alignment uh, with what this time of the year means, what we're actually celebrating, um, so that when we go about into all those other things and are with family and friends, um, we can hold true to, uh, to the hope that, that we have at this season. And I, I, I believe Christmas is, is unique, at least in one way, in that it's, it's a major, uh, it's, it's a holy day for the Christians, but at the same time, it's simultaneously celebrated as a secular holiday more and more, um, especially in our culture, right? So what you have right now is you essentially have two different celebrations that are simultaneously happening right now as, as we speak. And on one side, there's a positive to that. On one side, because this holiday is literally celebrating God coming to the earth and God becoming flesh, and it's so Christ-centered, regardless if someone holds to that belief or not, they're going to be touched and affected by Christian values and virtues. And so for that sense, I'm, I'm, that's awesome, right? Generosity, family time, kindness, these are all things that everyone just naturally gravitates towards, even if they don't follow Jesus. And, and for that, I'm, I'm grateful. But there's a potential negative as well, which is that if we're not careful, there seems to be a mounting, surging divergence from the true meaning of this season. And, uh, and if we're not careful, I even see in the Christian faith that you can find that there's a real muddiness when it comes to what exactly are, are we celebrating. And, uh, and that's really, I just want to bring us into alignment with the, the glory of, of what it is. Um, I think in, so, in some part, the commerciality of Christmas that we see now, in some way it hides the true meaning of this season. Um, the thought is often that we're coming into a sentimental season this nostalgic season where we remember a time on the earth where everything was good and everybody was happy, and we're doing our best to just work together to bring us back to that place. Um, that's the farthest thing from the biblical account. 
the biblical account, as we'll see, is, and this is encouraging, is that there was deep darkness on the land and on God's people. And God in mercy and God in love, when his people were cut off from him and unable to get out of their own situation, the God of creation entered into creation. He took on flesh and willfully subjected himself to our frailty, to our weakness. He willfully and voluntarily allowed himself to experience the sufferings of this earth, even though they are not the cause of his own hand, but by our own rebellion towards him. Nevertheless, he enters in to take on flesh in order to live the life that we could not live, die the death that we deserve, and then rise again that there could be hope. So this is, so I want to encourage you that if you come around this season, if you've experienced loss, if, if life seems to be somewhat uh, shaking, and for that reason, you've bought kind of the, 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 the one stream of this season, which says that uh, this is a fantasy world that we're trying to recreate. If your life is shaking, you say, well, I'm always going to be an outsider. I want you to know that's not the case. The Christmas story and the hope is that right in the midst of our brokenness, right in the midst of our most painful place, God showed up. God came and made a way for, for you to have a hope that literally transcends the very thing that you are walking through that feels so overwhelming. And so we remind ourselves that God wins, and if you're with him, like there is true reason for joy and hope at this time. So I want to break off some false narratives this morning that maybe kind of get attached to the story and bring us into the true account of, of what it is that we're celebrating. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to attempt as best we can to get into the minds and the perspective of those original hearers when those angels showed up and said, Behold, unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord of all. And the reason why I say that is because we're 2,000 years or so removed from that announcement. And over the years, and rightfully and thankfully so, we've had many individuals, including ourselves, who have thought, reflected, and worked out a very polished New Testament theology as to what actually happened on that day. But when those events were unfolding real time, they were trying, what were they leaning into? They didn't have all of this time to think about it. These were Jewish men and women who were leaning into their Jewish roots and leaning into the Hebrew scriptures to make sense of what was happening as angels are showing up and there's a promise that your Messiah has come. So one of the best things we can do is try to get into the Jewish perspective to understand what is actually the hope of this season. So we're going to go to a prophecy that I know is well known in Isaiah chapter 9 because this would have been in the hearts and minds of the people when they're hearing that a, a baby was born. So I'll have it on the screen as well. I'm actually going to read a verse in Isaiah chapter 8 first, but you can turn there if you have your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah if you're turning there. We're going to look at a well-known prophecy that will help, uh, again, put us into the, what were they expecting? What is the hope that we've been grafted into? And uh, this is one of the greatest prophecies regarding the birth of Jesus um, this is a, uh, a prophecy that we circled around in the prayer room this last few weeks, not, not intentionally. It's just the way the Lord led us. And so I want to I give deeper meaning to it and, and then um, pray for us. We'll take communion today, and, and you'll be able to hold to these things dearly as you're with family and friends. So everyone there, or at least looking on the screen? Everyone good? All right, so Isaiah... So here's what I want you to hear, and then we'll jump into it. This is Isaiah 9-6 is going to be the key verse for us. This is the... The well-known, Zach is all excited right now. Zach, Zach lives in Isaiah. I mean, he's just beaming. The glory of the Lord is on him. You just want to get around him right now. He's like, this is a good Christmas. <laughs> um, 
Isaiah 9, 6 is for unto us, to us, a child is born, unto us a son is given. All right, so if you have no bearing for why we're going here, that's the prophecy that eventually we're going to get to. But what we're going to see is around that promise is all of the fruit that will happen when this child comes. Okay, so that's, a, that's where we're going to go. Now the context, just stay with me in this. I want you to understand this is important. Is Isaiah, like most of the prophets, but it's especially pronounced in Isaiah, he really has two sides to his message. One side of Isaiah's message is judgment. The other side is hope. Okay, now on the judgment side, because of Israel's persistent rebellion, idolatry, and morality, constantly rejecting God and his ways and his voice and his leadership, uh, Isaiah says, if you don't turn to God, judgment will come. There will be discipline upon you. God will not forsake them, but he will discipline. And the climax of their judgment is going to be captivity. Now, this is all actually really beautiful parallels uh, for the New Testament spiritual realities, that through our rebellion to God, we are spiritually captive. We're slaves to sin and to Satan, it says, and so we'll draw out some of those as we go through. But that's, that's like the heart of this, that through their resistance to God, they would fall into captivity. The northern kingdom would be Assyria, and then later on, the southern kingdom would fall to Babylon. But while Isaiah is prophesying this looming judgment throughout his writings, it's meshed with this profound hope that's going to come. He says there's going to be a day where God is going to break in an unusual way. It's going to mark a new era. It's going to mark a new reign. And it's going to be signaled by the coming of a king. And when this king comes, everything's going to change. And he is going to lead Israel to be able to do for Israel what Israel cannot do for themselves. And in that, he'll save Israel and become a light to the nations, to the Gentiles. So throughout Isaiah, you're constantly seeing this tension of, of God dealing with the rebellion of his people, but then saying, but I'm not going to forsake you. I will fulfill every covenant promise. And I will eventually bring you into the very purpose of why I saved you. Amen? So as we come into the immediate text of Isaiah, the end of Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 9, that same tension is in this text. And you cannot appreciate the hope of chapter 9 without understanding the dire position that God is describing through Isaiah regarding his people. So here, here's, listen, here's, here's the situation. Once again, Israelites are rejecting God. They've gone their own way. And Isaiah is calling them to turn to the Lord, but they refuse. Not only do they refuse to turn to God, but they turn to false sources of strength and security and victory. So they turn to, it says, mediums, necromancers, the, the, the spirits of the pagans. Uh, they look to them for counsel and to tell them what the future holds. And then they turn to political figures. They turn to certain kings. They turn to uh, political alliances. They turn to Egypt. So there's impending judgment, and God is saying, turn to me, and they're trying to make pacts with Egypt, saying Egypt will deliver us. I actually think there's profound parallels of things that we see going on in our country right now. Like God is speaking to the nation, saying, turn to me, and we're looking to kings and political leaders, and all this other stuff, saying, this will be our deliverer, this will be our deliverer. And what you'll find is that to the degree that they keep looking to false sources, they get plunged deeper and deeper and deeper into darkness. Through their rebellion, through thinking it will be through a king or a po uh, political leader or, or another nation, they keep going deeper into darkness. And God the whole time is saying, look unto me. And so look at verse 22 of chapter 8. This kind of is the climax of this darkness. It says, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. 
So before chapter 9, this is the state. The people of God, through their uh, depending on false sources, are thrust into thick darkness. Darkness represents two things, I, I believe, in Scripture. One is evil, so they're spiritually and morally corrupt, but it also speaks to blindness when you're in darkness, which means they are corrupted spiritually and too blind to know the cure to get out. <laughs> so they are utterly stuck. They can't get out. They're hopeless. This is the state that God's people are being, uh, are being described as. In fact, it says that they look to the earth, and as they look to the earth, deep darkness falls upon them. That phrase, look to the earth, means they, again, are trusting in self to get out of this. In other words, what they're saying is things are bad, but we can make, our, we can make a way out. We, we can find a way to get ourselves out of this. And just like I said before, it's the same thing that often happens in our own lives. Things are bad, but we can figure a way out of this. We'll look to technology, the marketplace, the economy. We'll look to, again, a political leader. We'll look to someone like that. We can get out of this. And, beloved, the Christmas, the Christmas message is that things are, are darker than we realize, but the hope is far greater than we understand as well. But, but the idea is that we can pull ourselves together and, and make a brighter future. Christmas reminds us, no, 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 no. Christmas reminds us that we are utterly stuck unable to get out on our own strength. But God, once man's attempts to, to step into light has failed, God will step in. And so, so as man is thinking innovation and intellect is their way out and everything's falling flat on its face and their lives are unraveling and they're bound in darkness, Isaiah begins to behold another day. He begins to see with the eye of faith. In other words, what he sees doesn't happen until 700 years after this. But he begins to see something and says, I see a future day breaking in on our darkness. I see a new era coming upon us that will be a glorious reversal of every calamity that we're in. How will we know what happens? He says, I see a king coming. But this king will come as a baby. That's what we're going to see. This king will come. And when this king comes, it will mark, it will mark the, the, that the new day has started. <laughs> This is what I say. So this is what we're reading in chapter 9 as he switches, is while darkness is on God's people, now Isaiah is saying, wait a minute, I want you to see what I see by faith. Amen? So it will be signaled by the advent of the promised king. Devastation was true, but it will ultimately give way to glory. So let's read Isaiah 9, verse 1. This is where our Christmas text comes in. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Okay, so there was just deep, gloomy anguish, deep darkness. Do you hear the language? But now something has shifted. Again, we don't find out until what, how this is. It's because of a child that was born. But all of this is the fruit circling around this child. Let's read it again, verse 1 of chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time... He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. So here's what he's saying. He, meant, he makes a reference that there is going to be an incredible reversal of these regions. And he mentions Zebulon and Naphtali. And they were formerly in contempt, which means when they were taken captive by Assyria, contempt means they were disrespected, they were humiliated, they were mocked. Now he's saying land that was once humiliated, disrespected, people would never want to go there. It will now be known as the glorious way. Hallelujah. Mastic Beach shall be saved. <laughs> There's not a single region that's too dark. In fact, 
he mentions Zebulon and Naphtali for a very important reason. It's easy to read through these clues and say, ah, he's just listing out things that have no bearing. But no, these are very significant. Because Zebulon and Naphtali are the most northern region of the northern kingdom. Which means when Assyria invaded from the north, who was the first to go into captivity? Zebulon and Naphtali. So what he's saying is the areas that were in bondage the longest, the place that was oppressed for the longest, the place that was most influenced by the pagans that took them under their control will find hope on this day. There is not a single region or person who is outside of hope when this child is born. No matter where you find yourself today, no matter how long you've been in that situation, I was, many of you know my story, bound in addiction for seven years. I thought I was done. I thought I blew everything. I, I burned almost every relationship. But there was one who came to me in that place. <laughs> there was one who came. It says, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You know what a bruised reed is? It's almost like bamboo. You use it for thatching roofs. This is what it says about Jesus. When he comes, the bruised reeds he's not going to break. If you bruise one of those reeds, it's purposeless. It's garbage. You discard it. If a wick begins to smolder, that's when the black comes out of the, out of the candle. It's garbage. What do you do with that? You throw it away. But it's saying with Jesus, when he comes to people who are bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, he will not throw you out. He will not discard what the earth has said is beyond repair. This, he says, is the justice of God. This is the hope. Every single person is, is, is within reach of this. So it's hardest for everyone. In fact, notice at the very end of chapter uh, verse 1, it says one of the descriptions of this land is it will be the Galilee of nations. That's a weird uh, a phrase, phraseology for that. It's because what it's saying is the hope of the Messiah will be for everyone, Gentiles. This isn't just for Israel now. God's going to come for everyone. And you want to know what's amazing? In Matthew 4, verses 12 to 17, when Jesus comes out of the wilderness temptation, guess where he goes? Zebulon and Naphtali. And it says, and he went here to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, that even though people were in deep darkness, a great light has shone upon them. This is like, this is what we're celebrating. If you're in deep darkness this morning, for whatever reason, light has come. And this is for you, that you'd receive it. Let's go to verse 2. That's only verse 1. Stunning hope. <laughs> this child brings stunning hope when he comes. Now, again, why am I saying this? Because when the shepherds and Mary and Simeon and Anna and the Magi, when they hear, unto you this day is born in, this, in the city of David, you have to understand all of these words are triggering thoughts like this. They're saying, wait, are you saying hope has come? <laughs> are you saying that the, the promised child has arrived? Let's look at verse 2. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. So here's this, again, here's the next part of the imagery here. This is very prophetic. It means real things, but it's very symbolic and metaphorical. And the picture is that God's people are in darkness, not just any darkness, deep darkness. If you have the King James Version, it actually says the shadow of death. In other words, the trouble was so intense, the imagery is that it cast a death-like shadow on them. What does it say for us who are outside of Christ in Ephesians 2? All of us were dead in sin. This is the picture of every person outside of the Lord. And so while they're in such darkness that it casts a death-like shadow on them, the imagery is they're groping around. They cannot see. And while they're in this place where they cannot make their way, all of a sudden a light has shone upon them. It speaks to a, a suddenness, a dawn, a flashing upon them. 
as they're groping, unable to see, Isaiah sees an image where now their eyes begin to blink and begin to squint because there's this blinding light that's starting to break in on them. This light, it's life. <laughs> this light is truth. This light is beauty, beauty that fascinates, beauty that will deaden all of your pursuits that are killing you. And you say, I don't know why I do what I do because we find those things fascinating. But this light is more fascinating. This light will, will break off and sever every sinful pursuit because you say this is the best thing ever this is the light of jesus jesus is the light of the world he is he's the marvelous light that comes in with truth life and beauty and rescues us and notice what it says it says the light has shone on them dawned upon them what that means is the light did not come from within the light did not come from the earth <laughs> it's very important they needed a light to come from the outside you see, once again, the, we break the false narrative at this time of the year that says Christmas reminds us that if, cheer up, if we just pull together, if we just love each other a little more, if we just pursue peace and harmony a little more, this world will be a better place. Those are, those are biblical virtues, but outside of the Lord, our pulling ourselves together can never do it. There's no light there. The, the, the Christmas message again is that things were very dark. Things were very bleak. The light is not within, but the light has come. And if we look to him, there's real breakthrough. There's real life being given to us in Jesus' name. We go into verse 3. This is all going to climax in verse 6. Verse 3 says, you have multiplied the nation. Do you guys see that? Israel, there's so many prophet, uh, words in the Old Testament. Israel became the laughingstock of the nations, ultimately humiliated and mocked because they were viewed as weak since they were taken as captives and slaves. And now this is saying, when this baby king arrives, I will multiply the nation of Israel. What he's saying, that Israel will not be depleted anymore. It will swell and grow its population. How will it do that? Not just by Israelites. This is speaking of Gentiles streaming in. Those who once mocked Israel and the God of Israel will now vie for the honor of belonging to the God of Jacob. Gentiles will say, we want to be a part of this nation. Guys, this is a fulfillment of Abraham's promise that his descendants will outnumber the, the stars in the sky. How will that happen? Not just by Jew, Jew birth alone, but by Gentiles coming in. This happened when Jesus came. The nation of Israel, if you will, Jew and Gentile in Christ, is swelling before us because this child has arrived. And then it says, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This is amazing. When this child comes, there'll be stunning hope, glorious light, and explosive, wild, celebratory, triumphant joy. That, that's what it's saying. This joy is going to sweep over God's people. What did the angel say to the shepherds in the field? Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That means exuberant, like wild joy. When the angels, we sang the song, when the angels appeared in the sky in that same verse, a few verses later, it says they were praising God. That's halal praise. That isn't just like somberly singing a song. It means they were dancing. The sky lit up with angels dancing and praising over the glorious news that this child has come. And now it's saying when, the, when, this, when this king comes, this joy will be the inheritance of his people. It'll be yours. And Isaiah illustrates it with two uh, two illustrations he uses. Look at the first one. He says, our joy will be like the joy at the harvest. So this, we're a little bit outside of this, 
Um, in hindsight, I probably should have sat and thought about a, a, an application that we could understand, but you can, you can think about it. But what they're saying for an agricultural people, this is very significant. Uh, Isaiah is saying the joy that you'll experience is like when it's time for, for harvest season, when it's time to gather all that you have. And when you get there, it's an unusually massive harvest. For an agricultural society, they said they would have been dancing. They would have been explosive with joy. He's saying that's the joy that you'll have. And then he says you'll also have joy. You'll be glad like when they divide the spoil. Now he switches to a military picture. And the picture is people waiting to see if their army has won, has won the battle. If they lose, they don't just lose the war. They become slaves. But now they see this triumphant army returning back to them, and not just empty-handed, but carrying hordes of good and plunder from the enemy's camp. The joy that would be on the people's hearts and minds when they see this. So collectively, Isaiah is using harvest language. He's using military language. I think what he really wants us to know is he's trying to say, when this king comes, you will have total joy, full joy. He's trying to give multiple images to say there's not a type of joy that will be out of reach when this king comes. It'll be like harvest time. It'll be like victory in war. Name whatever season you want, but that's the type of joy that comes when this king arrives. I'm joyful right now. <laughs> Stunning hope, marvelous light, and this explosive joy. And now Isaiah, he's going to, for the next three verses, he's going to deepen and explain why, what happens, why we should have this light and this joy. And so verse 4, verse 5, verse 6 all begin with this phrase, for. So in other words, what he's almost saying is this light has come, this joy is yours, and here's why you, you can have joy. Here's what this light will accomplish. So the first thing is, let's read verse 4. It says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So what is he saying here? The first thing he says, when this king comes, rod, the bar, the yoke, the staff, it's all, signs of it's all signs of oppression. And what he's saying is when this king comes, you're going to be delivered. Deliverance is being pictured here. Now, Israel was physically delivered, but in the new covenant, there's also been a deliverance that Jesus has brought into our life, which we'll see even more in, in the next verse. But here you have the yoke of his burden, the staff on his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. God says he has broken. He's released us from, from this oppression, from this captivity. Um, one of the things that's really, I think, amazing here is the imagery that's used is two. Two stories. Exodus, that's the language of rod and all that. That comes from Exodus. And then Midian speaks to Gideon's deliverance when, when Gideon was raised up. So this is, this, the word of God is so amazing. 700 years prior to Jesus. Now, now, this is why he's using these. He probably doesn't even fully grasp this, why he's using these. Number one, he uses imagery to say a deliverer is coming. But why Exodus and Gideon? Well, for one reason, who delivered the people in the Exodus story? Moses. But how did the story begin? The baby was rescued. He's saying deliverance is coming, and it will come through a baby. And then Gideon, Gideon delivers his people. What was the moral of Gideon's story? God took his army and stripped it down to 300. Why would he do that? He wanted them to know that my strength is made perfect in your weakness. What, what is Isaiah prophesying 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus? There is going to be an ultimate deliverer that comes, and it will be in the weakness of God through a child once again. When you see this child, you know it will come. <laughs> you want to know what's even, I think this is, I, I love this, I think this is even more amazing, is that 
In the Exodus deliverance, how did the people respond after they were delivered? Not that great. <laughs> Shortly after, they grumble, complain, and desire to go back to Egypt. In Gideon's story, after they're delivered, you, you know what happens? It says, I believe it's chapter 7, there was uh, widespread anarchy and apostasy. Many rebelled and went right back. But what we just read is that in this deliverance that is to come, the people are going to be marked by unexplainable joy. They're going to praise God. They're going to worship God. They're gonna, it's like this wholehearted response to God. Something is different about this, this, this episode. In the past acts of deliverance, God's people have gone right back to where they were before. Not this time. Because the people have changed? No. Their deliverer has changed. In both cases in the Old Testament, the reason why their response was inadequate for the act of deliverance was because they were led by an imperfect leader, an imperfect deliverer, an imperfect judge. But this says there's a day coming where you will have a perfect king, a perfect judge. And as a result of his perfection, the response of God's people will be appropriate for what God has done for them because he's that good. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Look at verse 5. It goes on. It says, for every boot of the tramping warrior, of the tramping warrior, you guys see this? There it is. Of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What does that mean? That means, it's speaking of battle garments. <laughs> and it's saying, when this baby comes, discard your battle garments. In fact, you, won't, you, you will not need them ever again, that you can use them as fuel for the fire. Why, why would you ever burn your battle garments? What does that mean? War is over. <laughs> Someone has come to bring peace. This is saying you're going to be the benefactors of a war that you didn't fight for. Wait, actually, we're the ones who declared war on God, and he came to declare peace. Why were yet still his enemies? Christ died for us. Th this, is, this is profound. He's saying you don't need these garments anymore because war, war is over. Why? Because one has fought for you. Listen, th this, between verse 4 and verse 5, the, the, the total picture is that when this baby comes, complete victory will also come. Complete victory will come. The gospel, the gospel parallel to this is that it's the story of the true oppressor. Sin, death, kingdom of darkness has utterly been shattered and broken by King Jesus. And the burden of guilt that was on your heart through living counter to how God has created you is removed when you receive this king. The, the, that, that feeling of guilt is gone, and you are alive and free before the presence of, of your creator. You're no longer crushed under the weight of your sin. That's the burden picture. Why? Because one was crushed for you. See, Isaiah doesn't tell us fully here how this king will actually win the war for us, but he will not win this warfare through warfare. This is not the way of the kingdom of God. He could have called down legions of angels. This is not the way he fights. And we need to always be reminded of this, that the way that God fought is by the laying down of his life. And this is how he actually won the hearts of his enemies. That's me. <laughs> That's not just someone. Listen, God's enemies are not just someone out there. You and I, it says, we're hostile towards God. And God won us over, not by beating us into submission, but through his loving kindness. He was pierced and crushed. We celebrate at this time of the year that the unbreakable one became pierceable. The immortal one became mortal. The infinite one became finite. In love, he took on flesh for us and won a battle that we could never win. Hallelujah. And so then it comes here to chapter 6, uh, verse 6. <laughs> 
Look at verse 6. The last, this is the climactic explanation. Everything we've shared reaches its kind of swelling point. Verse 6, here's your great Christmas verse that you see on cups and everywhere else, and rightfully so, but now hopefully you have a little bit deeper understanding. As God's people are drowning in darkness, all of these things are going to come, and here's why. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. <laughs> I find this really fascinating that the entire emphasis of this, this coming deliverer is his birth. It does not emphasize the need for him to mature for all that he comes to do to, to, to be secured. In other words, what this is saying is once you see his birth, everything he's come to do is done. <laughs> it's almost like it's finished before it's finished. So once, once you see his birth, all the results that are going to be possible because of his coming, it's over. So now think about, fast forward to Luke chapter 2. <laughs> Angels appear to the shepherds and say, oh, I bring you good news of great joy. For unto you this day is born in the city of David. That's a king. It says a savior, the Messiah, Christ, Lord of all. See, you have to understand, they're saying, wait, say that again? <laughs> And then he says, this will be a sign to you that you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling, swaddles in, in clothes. When they hear this, they're thinking, wait a minute. Does this mean Isaiah has happened? Is this the baby? Is this the child that was promised? They're still working out the details. But for them, they're saying, wait, does this mean stunning hope has broken in? Marvelous light to overcome darkness has come. The joy of victory is ours. Yes, that's right. <laughs> This is what's going through the minds as he steps on the scene. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Child is born speaks to his humanity. He will be an actual human. <laughs> a son is given speaks to his royalty or his deity, his divinity. So again, like packed within these verses, several hundred years prior to Jesus, you're seeing all the things that we now know as staples of the faith, that there is a coming deliverer who will be fully God, fully man. <laughs> How this will happen, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, that God becoming flesh, it is a great mystery. <laughs> and it remains a mystery. If, you, if we were to just speak on God becoming flesh, and if I were to teach for an hour, and you were to leave here, in some respects, more confused than when you started, I almost did my job. <laughs> Because it is such a mystery that when he came into the flesh, he remained fully God but fully man. He didn't divest himself of his deity. I was just telling Johnny this before. When he was on the earth, he never stopped being God. But now that he's in heaven, he never stops being man. He's forever the God-man now. It was not always like that. He was always the eternal word. But when he stepped into the earth and took on flesh, he became Jesus. He never had that name before, and now forever, he's standing with flesh and blood before the Father, and he makes intercession. Just his presence in, in the flesh is interceding for you because he's forever representing us before God as the perfect one. Like the Christmas story wasn't a, a, a blip on the screen on earth and gone. His flesh extends forever. We're going to one day behold the lamb and see the, 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 the wounds in his hand and his side. Actually, I'm convinced it says all of us get perfected bodies. 
I believe there's one who will always have wounds, though. Our bodies will be perfect. There's one who will always bear his wounds because it will remind us that our perfectness is because of that right there. Forever and ever and ever. It says, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, which means this child is going to rule. <laughs> now, look how beautiful this is. Um, if you want, you can flip it back on uh, verse 4. If you can put verse 4. Look what it says of verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder. Notice, so what it's, it's picturing is it's an imagery of an oppressor beating our shoulder, like getting whipped. This is the burden we have. But then it says when this king comes, he, the, uh, the government will be upon his shoulder. In other words, when he comes to take on and bear the responsibility to rule, he releases the burdens on our shoulder. When he bears the burden to rule, our burdens are lifted. Once he comes and says, now I'm going to lead the way, what was on us is lifted. And his name... I'm back in verse 6. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now these names are not just things that we're thinking in the moment. These are directly connected to his character and the type of leadership that he's going to bring. So he, when he leads, this king will be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. Why is that important? Mighty, uh, wonderful counselor and mighty God are especially significant because what that's emphasizing is wisdom and strength. And kings at this time, those are two qualities you needed to have to lead your people into flourishing. If you look even at Israel's kings, if they lacked wisdom, what happened to the nation? Went right downhill. Wisdom makes or breaks the nation in these days. And if you lack the strength personally and to have an army to fight, you could not guarantee freedom and liberty for your people. So what this is saying is that when God comes in a baby, <laughs> this baby comes with the necessary qualities to guarantee his people's preservation and liberation. He will come with the wisdom that is needed to make sure you never go off the cliff. You never have to worry about his leadership saying, oh, I should have never followed him. He led me in a place we weren't meant to go. And he'll have the strength that you never have to worry about once you're with him that, that you'll lose your freedom. He's a mighty God. He has the strength to keep you from victory to victory, strength to strength. Glory to glory, faith to faith. I'm convinced if everyone knew who Jesus really is, <laughs> I think, I think everyone's longing for a king like Jesus. I really do. I think a lot of it is, is the enemy distorts and gives half pictures of God. And yes, he, we need to know his severity and his goodness. Um, there's both, both of those, but I think the enemy loves to, to just distort that and give one side. This is a king that every heart longs for. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. That's a term that's not used a lot for Israel, but when it is used, it speaks to caring for the overlooked, the widows, the orphans. He's the type of God that he's not measuring us by our earthly possessions and things like that, the way we do. His heart is for every person in his family. And then finally, verse 7. Here's where we'll end. It says, And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. <laughs> On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Listen to this last phrase we're going to read. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will 
do this. <laughs> How will God accomplish all that we just said? Zeal means jealous love. It's his jealous love that's going to cause him to do this. He's not going to be manipulated into this. He won't be forced to do it. It's his burning desire to rescue his people and to be faithful to what he has promised. When this king comes, it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, meaning his rule is limitless. It will keep extending and extending until he rules all. When the angel came, again in Luke 2, the last phrase it says is, in the city of David is born to you a savior, Christ, the Messiah, the Lord of all. This is the Lord of all that's come. Everywhere his government extends, peace is the fruit of that. Peace, righteousness, justice. Justice means setting everything right. If you look out onto the earth, you look out in your own life and see things and say, I wish this wasn't like this brokenness that I see in my own life and this earth. Something inside of me says, this is not right. His kingdom is going to set everything right. It is setting everything right. When Jesus was born, guys, this isn't saying it has to wait for him to return. It has begun. The arrival of this child means his kingdom now comes in seed form, and it is ever expanding and increasing until he returns and brings it into its consummation. So all of this and so much more is what we're celebrating at this time. <laughs> that, that in the midst of all the fun things that we do that I, I absolutely love, all the traditions and silly things that come at this time of the year, I'm, not, I'm all for that. But just remember this. We remember our own lives in this, that we were once in deep darkness, and a child was born that brought stunning hope, glorious light, explosive joy, complete victory, and unending rule that will never end. <laughs> I think we have a lot to celebrate this Christmas. So I want to I leave you with this, and then we're going to take communion. Because all those realities are great. But how do those realities become experiential in your own life? In other words, how does that hope, joy, freedom, how does the light that brings liberty, how do you actually experience that light where it's liberating you? How do you, how do you experience his kingdom that brings peace, justice, righteousness? How does that begin to transform you? How do you go from just remaining an outsider, just hearing another reading of God's story, and then moving on with your life and remaining unaffected by it? Well, I think there's actually a clue in this text that I'll, I'm just going to read it and, and, uh, and hopefully provoke you with something. Verse 6 again says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This gift, this son, was given to us, which means it's a gift, which implies it's grace. The Christmas story is rooted in the grace and generosity of God. So what that means, if you want to experience this gift, you cannot earn it. <laughs> you cannot work for it. You cannot live a good enough life for you to be qualified to, to receive it. It is purely a gift, for unto us a son is given. There was nothing in and of ourselves that made God do it outside of he loves us, but there was nothing that he said, this is why, because you've done this. We've actually did everything to disqualify ourselves. We did everything we could <laughs> in our own strength for God to say, I will abandon you. But instead, he says, I will come and revive you. The only thing you and I can do is, by grace, receive this gift through faith and say, I bring nothing to it except trusting fully that God has provided everything for me. Now, when you hear that, you say, well, who would not want that? <laughs> and as I said before, some, some have a distorted view of God. When they hear things like this, they recognize 
man, God is for me. <laughs> He's not against me. But I do believe there's another reason why when you lay out these truths that are so beautiful that man does not at first, at first hearing always jump right in and say, I want it. And here's why. And don't miss this. This is why many remain outside to the glory of this gift at this time of the year. It's because every amazing promise of the Christmas story, of the Christmas message, is both, it's two-edged. It's both wonderful and threatening. <laughs> threatening in what way? Not, not evil, not bad. Threatening, let, let me illustrate this way. If you were in a financial crisis, I mean in burden that was well beyond you could ever pay off, insurmountable, you feel the weight, you feel the anxiety, there's no light at the end of the tunnel, but then a friend comes along and says, I have that type of money to pay off that debt. I'll give it to you. On one side, it's this is amazing. I'm, the burden that was on my shoulders will be lifted. But in order for you to receive that gift, what must you admit? That you are in financial crisis and you do not have the ability to get out of it. And if you're willing to swallow your pride and admit those things, the burden that was on your shoulders will be lifted and your friend will come to your rescue. But the reason why many walk away from the offering that's being presented this morning is as glorious as it is, as wonderful as these truths are, it's also very threatening to our own life. It's threatening to the pride of man. You see, he's the light of the world. He's the light that brings truth. He's the light that liberates. He's ultimate beauty and fascination. Who would not want that? But in order for you to receive that light, what must you admit then? You were in darkness. That you and I were too spiritually corrupt and too spiritually blind to get ourselves out. But, oh, if you would be brave enough and courageous enough to enter into that statement and confession, the light of the world would be yours. <laughs> you would experience what David experienced, the refreshing uh, uh, internal feeling of being washed and cleansed by this. Oh, unto you this day is born in the city of David. Your king has come. Peace, righteousness, justice is for you. But what must you admit if you want to receive this king? That you are not king. That you do not have final authority over your life. That you are no longer in control over your life. But he is. But he's a good master. He's a good king. But I would lead you into a half-truth to say, take this, but not understand what it really means. To receive all this means I yield my life completely to this king. He is Lord over my life, not me. God gives all of himself my goodness, the darling of heaven left glory for you. But what does Paul say? In light of him giving all of himself, give all of yourself. <laughs> You're not your own anymore. But if we would admit that, if we would say, I want that, you would have it. You would have it. See, God gave his son. The son became flesh. I mean, this is what the heart of the Christmas message is. The word became flesh. Think about the love that that expresses all that that means. But in order again to receive that, what also does it mean? It means that you and I are so lost, <laughs> are so gone, that the only remedy is for God himself to step in and die in our place. Which means you and I are not the type of people that can pull ourselves together <laughs> and live a good enough and moral, moral enough life for us to be rescued. It required that type of sacrifice for God to do it. And he wanted to do it because he loves you. And so everything we've shared, the freedom, the liberty, the hope, the joy, all of that, you can make a transaction from just hearing it and then remaining unaffected to having your entire life changed this morning by actually yielding to it and saying, I admit I need a savior. 
I admit my life is bound in that. And the only way out is the Lord. And if you would do that, <laughs> everything we share will be yours. Amen? So I want to just take a moment before we take communion to pray for that. I'm not trying to for, uh, you know, twist someone's arm into this. This is what I want you to be thinking about today, now. I want you to recognize, do, do I want that? Do I, do I want to experience that? I, I, I forget who said it. It may have been Eric Gilmore. He, he presented it this way. He said, it's like a kid. The gospel is like, like a kid looking through the window outside on a street uh, at, at candy. <laughs> and he's looking at all the delicious candy. <laughs> and it's, he, he can read all the, the wrappers. He can look at all the, the, the nutritional facts or lack thereof. He, he can see everything and know it all. But he has not yet tasted it because there's a glass wall still there. How do you move from just hearing the stories of Christ, hearing these things, to actually tasting and experiencing it and saying, I've received this. That glass wall needs to be removed. That, that's the pride of man. It's when we humble ourselves that that wall's removed and you get to taste and see that the Lord is good. So you can think about it throughout this week, but I'll give you even response right now. Is there, is there anyone here that says, I, I'm not asking, to, this is not about a rededication, but even right from where you're at, you can just lift your hand. Is there anyone who's never surrendered their life to the Lord and says, I want to receive this gift this morning? You can just lift your hand up because I just want to pray for you right where you're at. You can stay where you're at. Is there anyone in this room that has never received Jesus as Lord and Savior? And if not, then I'm in a company of <laughs> joyful Victorious saints, and I love it. <laughs> well, listen, don't think. Are you sure? This is family. It'll change everything. This day will be marked, and you'll look back and say, that was the day. Everything changed. All right. Well, then let me just pray for the rest of us that these realities would be felt and experienced more than ever. And I want, I want you to know, if, if for whatever reason there was a resistance to publicly acknowledging that, I just want you to know the Lord is forever calling on you. You could walk outside this tent. It doesn't need to look any certain way. And you could just say, I need him. You're the truth. What I heard was truth, and I don't want to go another second without it. And I promise you, in that moment, God will come upon your life. And everything's going to change. I'm not promising perfection, but everything will change. You will not be the same person anymore. So, Lord, I just pray that your seed would be implanted in every heart this morning. And I pray, God, that what is intended to come forth would come forth in the name of Jesus. I pray every heart that even feels stirred right now, God, let your full work of salvation be done. Whatever it looks like, God, stepping out of this tent, if there even are people, Lord, but if there is, God, I pray, as they're in the car, as they're, they hear a song that's worshiping you at this time of the year, God, bring them to a place of humility and desiring, calling out on your name. We pray, God, that you would become real to every person here. And I, I pray, God, that every reality that we've said, that for those that are firmly rooted in you, would you just sweep over them this morning right now? Would hope and joy and light and life and liberty, victory, 
all of these realities, God, I just pray, we just speak and say, come forth in the name of Jesus. Where there's hopelessness, we pray now to be broken off in the name of Jesus, Lord. Everything that comes with your arrival, we say, come forth in the name of Jesus. We say all darkness to break off your people, all heaviness to break off in the name of Jesus. We're praying, God, that we would be shining lights, testimonies around dinner tables today, God, around conversations where people would see the glow in our face. They would hear it in our words, God. We pray for joy to swallow up heaviness this morning, God. Let joy arise. We pray garments now. We ask for angels to come and place garments of praise upon your people this morning, God. Oh, every, every eye that's lifted, that, that's set low in the spirit, every eye that's, every head that's in the spirit looking low, hanging down. We pray like Isaiah, let the eye of faith be lifted up. Let it not just look to a future day, but it look back to a day that, is a, that has come, to a day that we're living in, God. That this is the reality. This son was born this child was born, this son was given. <laughs> and to everyone who received him, they were given the right to be called children of God. So let firm identity, let it be like an anchor to our souls this morning, not being blown around by lies and deception. And we belong to you. I bless your people, Lord. We bless them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. We're so happy you could join us on the Home Church Podcast. We pray this week's message encourages you to behold the Lord Jesus and bring his kingdom wherever you go. You can visit us online at myhomechurch.org, subscribe to our YouTube channel, or follow us on social media. If you would like to give to this ministry, text the amount to 84321. Bless you.